Recorded Books presents an unabridged recording of The Reformation, A History, by Patrick Collinson, narrated by John McDonough, and directed by Drew Sussman. This book is copyrighted 2003 by Patrick Collinson. This recording is copyrighted 2005 by Recorded Books. The religious reformations of the 16th century were the crucible of modern Western civilization, profoundly reshaping the identity of Europe's emerging nation-states. Patrick Collinson, one of the preeminent historians of this period, offers here a concise yet thorough overview of the drastic ecumenical revolution of the late medieval and Renaissance eras, making clear how the battles for men's lives often started in the battles for their souls. And now... The Reformation, A History. Chapter 1. Reformation. What Reformation? This is a book about the Christian West, Western Christendom almost equivalent to what would become Europe, the Europe of the EU before enlargement, but minus Greece. The Western Church, whether obedient or disobedient to that self-appointed successor of St. Peter, the Bishop of Rome, has never paid much attention to Eastern Christendom, from which it parted company a millennium ago. Whether Western Christendom is entitled to think as much of itself as it always has done, not least in investing with a kind of cosmic significance certain events in its history in the 16th and 17th centuries, is one of the questions lurking in the background of our investigation of the Reformation. By comparison with the West, Eastern Christendom is not monolithic, but rather a family of churches. Besides those claiming the title Orthodox and acknowledging the honorary primacy of the Patriarch of Constantinople as ecumenical, there were and are other ancient churches defined both ethnically and by ancient, half-forgotten, but apparently unbridgeable dogmatic differences. They include the Armenians, whose king embraced Christianity and made it the official religion of his kingdom early in the 4th century. A little before Constantine did the same thing for the Roman Empire. Another is the Coptic Church of Egypt, which went its own way doctrinally after the Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD, defined orthodoxy, insisting that Christ had only one nature, monophysitism, and not the Orthodox too, a breach that has so far lasted for 1,500 years. Its daughter church in Ethiopia, which since 1959 has called itself the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, is something else, although until 1959 it received its one and only bishop from the Coptic Patriarchate of Alexandria. Inseparably identified with the Ethiopian nation, its worship is conducted in an early form of the national languages of that country and it retains many Jewish features that are perhaps fossils of early Christian practice, such as observance of the Jewish Sabbath and abstention from the forbidden meats of the Old Testament. Although enough has happened to make it possible, and an interesting exercise, to write the histories of any or all of these churches, those histories have been relatively lacking in evolutionary, let alone revolutionary, transformations. None of the Eastern churches has experienced anything like the Reformation and its reactive counter-Reformation, although the schism of the old believers in Russia, from 1667 until the present day, may be the exception to prove this rule. However, in all these manifestations of the Christian faith, as indeed in religion more generally and globally, we find the eternal principles of renewal and conversion. 
The Christian baptism of infants, which has in effect been compulsory wherever the religion has remained publicly and politically established, may suggest that the church is something into which people are born. Yet it is individuals in their uniqueness who are baptized, and every child, through sponsors or godparents, has to renounce the devil and all his works and turn personally to Christ. For baptism is, or ought to be, that second birth that Jesus explained to the Jewish elder Nicodemus. Ye must be born again. In Ethiopia there is an annual ceremony in which the tabot, a replica of the Jewish Ark of the Covenant, containing the altar stones, is carried with much ceremony from each church to the nearest water, into which the people plunge in order to renew their baptism. This is the time known as Maskal, which means the cross, when the Ethiopian spring bursts out after the great rains, bright with yellow Maskal daisies. The symbolism is obvious. In present-day Anglican churches, when a child is baptized, the practice is to invite the whole congregation to repeat and renew their own baptismal vows. This can happen, too, at the European Spring Festival of Easter, another season of renewal. In these examples, the principle of renewal is, to use an ugly sociological term, routinized. What is supposed to be an event becomes a time-out-of-mind custom and an institution continuity rather than discontinuity. But the flow of religious history has always been punctuated and diverted by episodes and experiences of conversion. In the Judeo-Christian story, Abram was told by God, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred. And even his name was changed to Abraham. Moses was called by God, manifest in a burning bush, to give up his occupation as a shepherd and to lead his people out of Egyptian slavery. The prophet Isaiah had a vision of the Lord of hosts, who said, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. John the Baptist summoned the people of his time to repentance in a setting full of symbolism, the Judean desert, through which flowed the river Jordan. Jesus told a tale about the repentance of the prodigal son who, when in utter dereliction, came to himself and returned to his father. Saul of Tarsus was on his way to persecute the early Christians when he was blinded by a light from heaven, the Damascus Road experience. This was his call to be an apostle. And Paul, for he too changed his name, went on, in the opinion of many, to invent and construct Christianity itself. This at least superficially repetitive factor recurs throughout the history of Christianity. The conversion of St. Augustine, thanks to his confessions, became a paradigm consciously or unconsciously imitated and replicated. Francis of Assisi renounced all worldly goods and the very clothes he stood up in in order to reinvent the Vita Apostolica. Ignatius Loyola, a soldier recovering from his wounds, was converted by reading religious books, there being nothing else to read, and this was followed by a series of intense religious experiences out of which the Society of Jesus was born. What if he had been killed in that battle, or had found some novels to read? John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed on May 24, 1738. Moments of conversion are supposed to be that precise when he heard Martin Luther's preface to St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans read in a chapel in Aldersgate Street in London. 
The consequence of that event was the thick strand of Protestant Christianity known as Methodism. Haley Alevi thought that without Methodism there might have been an English revolution along the lines of 1789. England had a religious revolution instead, which bred self-help, trade unionism, and a non-revolutionary but sturdy popular politics. It is, of course, that same Luther with whom everyone who attempts to write a history of the Reformation must engage. For without Luther, we can be reasonably certain that there would have been no Reformation, or not the same Reformation. Thomas Carlyle went further. His history was the story of heroic individuals. And he thought that if Luther had not stuck to his guns at the Diet of Worms, where he stood before the Holy Roman Emperor and refused to recant, Here I stand there would have been no French Revolution and no America. The principle that inspired those cataclysmic events would have been killed in the womb. No one would now make such a claim. But we can still ask the question, was the Reformation, or was it not, a kind of midwife to the modern world? Luther, on more than one occasion, told the story of his own conversion. The different accounts are not entirely consistent with one another, or with what we otherwise know about his life and career, around the time it is supposed to have happened, when he was in his early thirties and a professor of theology in one of the new German universities. We know that the experience arose from a strenuous engagement with the theology of Paul to the Romans. The sufficiently technical, but for Luther thoroughly existential problem of how justitia dei, the punitive righteousness of God, was to be satisfied. Luther knew that Christ had already made satisfaction, as Christians had always affirmed, for the sins of the whole world. But how was that satisfaction to be applied to the individual Christian believer? Only, Luther discovered, by faith in Christ's sacrifice. Human moral striving was actually counterproductive, turning the soul evermore in upon itself. That was as much as to say that God, who is merciful, makes us righteous by a faith that God himself works in us. This has been called a kind of Copernican revolution in thinking about God. God, not man, is the center and prime mover of all things, including human salvation. Theologically, that had never been in doubt. In practice, however, the system of medieval Christianity emphasized moral effort, in effect, a journey toward God who, Luther insisted, is actually reaching out to us. According to other references to this moment that Luther made from time to time around the dinner table, it happened in a tower where he had his professorial study in the monastic house of the Augustinian canons, Luther's religious order, the so-called Turmerlebnis, or tower experience. According to Luther, this was indeed an experience, not simply an intellectual process. I felt myself straightway born afresh, and to have entered through the open gates into paradise itself. But that was only the beginning, and he went on to explain that he told the story, as Augustine said of himself, so that it should not be thought that he had suddenly from nothing become supreme, or, with one glance at Scripture, exhausted the total spirit of its content. Indeed, Luther did not come from nothing, but out of the rich resources of late medieval theology. We may be still more cautious about Luther's sudden Durchbruch, breakthrough, if we consider what happened at about the same time to an Englishman, the Cambridge scholar Thomas Bilney, who had probably never heard of Luther. 
reading, in the elegant Latin of a new translation of the New Testament by Erasmus, the words that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Bilney tells us, Immediately I felt a marvellous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. That was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in Cambridge, which led the way in all of England, and, after that, North America. There is a tension here between event and process that, projected onto a larger screen, is the tension between the Reformation as part of the continuum of history and the Reformation as an extraordinary historical moment, as it were, a meteor strike at history. For Max Weber, such interruptions in history represented the operations of what he called charisma, something that, as a social scientist, he did not presume to explain. Such figures as Moses, or Isaiah, or Luther were charismatic. What happened to these deeply religious Catholics and children of the later Middle Ages was no doubt compressed in their imaginative recollections into an almost conventional scenario, biblical and Augustinian, of blinding revelation and a total overturning of what they had always believed and taken for granted. In Jesus' words, they had indeed been born again. The historian who wants to measure the watershed separating the medieval world from what overtook and overturned it must take seriously the perception that those living through these events had of an almost total transformation. Another Englishman expressed the wish that God would bless an elderly uncle and make him now to know which in his tender years he could not see, for the world was then dark and we were blind in it. For him, the Catholic Church was not merely defective, but actually anti-Christian, its Pope, anti-Christ himself, the great deceiver. So the landscapes of both time and space were subject to a radical and seismic reconstruction, and a series of aftershocks would be experienced for a century and more to come. Whole communities, churches, and states shared in both the initial upheaval and the aftershocks. As Luther's theology was systematized as Lutheranism, large areas of Germany, which is to say the governments of princes and cities on behalf of their subjects, formally adopted what became known as the Evangelical Confession. Other governments promoted a variant form of Protestantism, more thorough in its departure from traditional Catholicism, and developed in the cities and cantons of southwest Germany and Switzerland above all in Geneva, where John Calvin was intellectually and spiritually dominant. These were the Reformed Churches, the title indicating their claim to be the best Reformed. Faithful to the principle of cuius regio, eius religio, the principle that the ruler determines the religion of his state, the Rhenish Palatinate in southwest Germany was successively evangelical, Reformed, briefly evangelical again, Reformed, and ultimately, somewhat brutally, re-Catholicized. The principle was defied in France, where a sizable Protestant and Reformed minority enjoyed strong political and military support, which plunged the country into decades of partly religious war. In the Netherlands, it was turned on its head, religion sustaining a revolt against the legitimate government of Spain and helping to give birth to a new kind of politics, that of the independent republic. England, which at the beginning of the 16th century seems to have been one of the most Catholic countries in Europe, became, by the 17th century, the most virulently anti-Catholic, 
and the almost dominant ideology of anti-Catholicism fueled the civil wars that engulfed all parts of the British Isles in mid-century and later provoked the bloodless revolution, from which what passes for a British constitution derives. This, however, is not where the inquiry should end. Nobody doubts that the 16th and 17th centuries were a time of change, confusion and conflict for countless individuals, local communities and whole states and nations. It is not wrong to call this an era of religious wars, comparable in scale to the revolutionary, nationalistic and ideological wars of the subsequent centuries. The only question is whether these circumstances were so different from the experience of earlier and later centuries as to make this a major turning point in European civilization, at least as important as the scientific revolution, the enlightenment of the 18th century, or the age of revolutions that began in 1776 and 1789. Making some of those comparisons, a distinguished historian of the last generation, Sir Herbert Butterfield, called both the Reformation and the Renaissance, which was its necessary precondition, merely internal displacements in European history. Others have doubted whether the Reformation represented any kind of radical departure from the mentalities, politics, or social structures of medieval Europe, or had anything to do with the shaping of the modern world. We may now find it helpful to speak of the medieval church and its reformation. Martin Luther, a medieval rather than a modern man, offered new answers to old questions. He asked no new ones. A receding view alters in perspective. Mountains no longer tower, and sharp and bold outlines are softened and blurred. It has become fashionable to demote the reformation to lowercase, and to pluralize it. Many reformations, both before and since what was once regarded as the Reformation, and in other places and other cultures. A recent textbook puts the Reformation into global perspective, placing this European event alongside the revival of the Confucian philosophy in China after a thousand years by the brothers Cheng Yi and Cheng Hao in the late 11th century or with the reconstruction of Islam by Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, 1703-1791, which, as Wahhabite Islam, became the state religion of Saudi Arabia. Another author, Felipe Fernandez Armesto, sticking to Christian parallels, makes Reformation a principle of world religion from 1500 to 2000, not a decisive, divisive event, but a continuing story, embracing the common religious experiences of Christians of different traditions worldwide. He takes us to the shores of a lake in Guatemala, the scene of a rich mixture of religions, Catholic, Evangelical, and Syncretist, to ecstatic religious dancers in Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the mass weddings of Moonies in Korea, beheaded Scottish Lady Presbyterians, a Catholic priest in New Guinea celebrating Mass in a grass skirt, and to a crematorium in a London suburb where a family who never go to church are led through the motions by a stranger, a vicar with a drinking problem. All of these are not only part of religion's rich tapestry, but manifestations of reformation in its myriad shapes and forms. That may be fun, but it is not very helpful. 
more responsibly, and surveying only the English Reformation scene, another historian proposes a plurality of successive Reformations, treating what happened in the 16th century as equivalent on the Richter scale to later changes of religious fashion, such as evangelicalism in the 18th century or high church neo-Catholicism in the 19th. Other historians of English religion speak of a long Reformation, reverberating for centuries. All of these events constituted what the 19th century learned to call revivals, or perhaps a continuity containing within itself the constant expectation of revival. However, it may be a serious distortion of history to diminish the critical beginnings of this lengthy process in which any historian of the Reformation is bound still to believe. Meanwhile, the French historian Jean Dulumont has argued that what the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation had in common was more important than what divided them. Both were episodes of almost primary Christianization in which the rural populations of Europe were confronted for the first time with what it meant to be a Christian, a process of profound internalization. The Ten Commandments were common ground and were almost newly discovered ground in their implications for individual conduct and conscience. However, John Bossy, an English historian with a cosmopolitan European outlook, doubts that. The West was Christian before 1500, and it is absurd to suggest otherwise, although it is true, he thinks, that it was then that the commandments took over from the seven deadly sins as the new moral gold standard. As a historian exceptionally sensitive to terminology, Bossy is tempted to get rid of the Reformation altogether. As a word rather than a thing, it may be a hindrance rather than a help to understanding what was going on with regard to religion in Europe within the scope of his book Christianity in the West, 1400 to 1700. The index has only three entries under Reformation, the first subheaded Term Discussed. That something important happened in the 16th century, Bossy does not doubt. And the term Reformation is probably as good a guide as any to investigating what it was. But it is to be used as sparingly as possible, not simply because it goes along too easily with the notion that a bad form of Christianity was being replaced by a good one, but because it sits awkwardly across the subject without directing one's attention anywhere in particular. It is too high-flown to cope with actual social behavior and not high-flown enough to deal sensitively with thought, feeling, or culture. It may be thought that the Humpty Dumpty of the Reformation has by now fallen off its wall, and that the aim of what follows will be to see whether we should or can put Humpty together again. But all those other Reformations are only called Reformations because of their supposed relation and resemblance to elements of THE Reformation. Without THE Reformation, the word would never have been used for what happened in the 10th century, or the 12th century, or the 18th century, or for what some of our deconstructionists suggest is always happening. So perhaps we can manage without all the king's horses and all the king's men. In 1991, a 564-page book entitled The European Reformation was published. 1996 saw the launch of the four-volume 1977-page Oxford Encyclopedia of the Reformation. 1999 heralded a substantial book called Europe's Reformations, 
In 2000, 576 pages appeared under the rubric The Reformation World. And in 2001, the greatest living English historian of the Christian Church, Owen Chadwick, published The Early Reformation on the Continent. In 2004, the British publisher Routledge brought out The Reformation, a four-volume collection of 72 articles selling at £475 sterling. It is not, after all, so easy to change the terminological and periodical structures within which we historians operate, although they must not be allowed to become airtight boxes in which we cease to think. Chapter 2. The Late Medieval Church and its Reformation no revolution, however drastic, has ever involved a total repudiation of what came before it. What do revolutionaries have to work with but the ideas and aspirations that they have inherited? What was Stalin but a new kind of czar? Thomas Hobbes pronounced that the papacy is not other than the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire, sitting crowned upon the grave thereof. Jesus was not the first Christian, and Luther was not a Lutheran. Luther denounced much of the religious practice of his day in a rising crescendo of protest, which soon left very little of the old church intact. He defined the church in grossly reductionist terms, simply as the sheep who hear their shepherds whistle. A child seven years old knows what the church is, namely the holy believers and the lambs that hear the shepherd's voice. For Leo X, the pope who excommunicated him, here was a wild boar, rooting up the carefully tended vineyard of the church. Luther responded by calling the Pope the man of sin and son of perdition, the end and dregs of all ages, and, toward the end of his life, in a book that he admitted had not pleased everyone equally, most hellish father. The paradox is that Luther's criticism came from deep within the very tradition that he denounced. It is a serious mistake, Carlyle's mistake, to suppose that at the Diet of Worms, Luther was claiming the sovereignty of his own conscience, as if the fact that he believed something to be true made it true, at least for him. What Wilhelm Diltai called the autocracy of the believing person. That would have been a modern state of mind, and Luther was not a modern man. Luther's conscience, every conscience, was enthralled by the Bible as the word of God, the only true foundation of the faith of the Church. It is the beginning of wisdom to understand that the Reformation was not, in its own eyes, a novelty. The novelties were those grave distortions of the truth that had passed for truth in more recent centuries, and which we know as medieval Catholicism. Yet Luther was himself some kind of late medieval Catholic. And even to say harsh things about the Supreme Pontiff was itself part of the late medieval legacy. Reform was a somewhat shop-soiled mantra long before the Reformation. Reformation, another way of translating the Latin reformatio, was a distinctly different and rather more concrete formulation, which, however, not even the 16th century invested with all the portmanteau meaning it would later have for historians. 
In the 11th century, Pope Gregory had presided over what history knows as the Gregorian reforms, designed to rescue the Church from the corrupting influence of secularization by insisting on clerical celibacy and an end to the buying and selling of Church offices, simony, and lay control of the Church's affairs. In 1215, another reforming pope, Innocent III, convened in Rome the fourth of the church councils held in the Lateran Palace, which formulated what was to become the official doctrine of the Eucharist, and required all Christians to make an annual confession of their sins, a considerable landmark. Pope Innocent and the Fourth Lateran Council also thought it a desirable reform to prevent the formation of new religious orders, so that the Franciscan and Dominican friars were the last under the wire, both of them expressions of the vigorous reforming impulses of their founders, St. Francis and St. Dominic. The early Franciscans, for whom the unworldly rule of complete poverty was always problematical, having split between a minority of hardliners, the so-called spirituals and the more conventional majority, later experienced a further rupture which divided a new generation of strict observants from the more lax conventuals. One of many reforms in the early years of the 16th century itself was the regularization of a new reformed Franciscan breakaway order, the Capuchins, who went back to wearing the rough cloak of Francis tied with a simple cord and sandals. Almost every religious order in the 15th and early 16th centuries had its own observant, we might say fundamentalist, tendencies, including Luther's own order, the Augustinian Canons. The world into which Martin Luther was born in 1483 was full of new religious things. There were new theological and intellectual fashions, which included a reappropriation of St. Thomas Aquinas among the Dominicans and a revived interest in St. Augustine and St. Paul, critical influences on Luther's own mind. There were newly rediscovered saints, such as Mary Magdalene, a conflation of Mary, the sister of Martha, and Lazarus, and the woman of easy virtue who washed Jesus' feet, who provided a model for the reform that required personal repentance for sin, as well as a way of addressing the woman question. There was a new or almost new devotion to St. Anne, mother of the Virgin Mary, who was popular among miners and metal workers, and to whom the young Luther prayed when caught out in a violent thunderstorm, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk his first conversion. The Virgin herself had never been so popular, the virgins of this and that place vying for the custom of pilgrims. In England, Our Lady of Wilsdon versus Our Lady of Ipswich. At Regensburg in southeast Germany, where a synagogue was being demolished to make way for a church, anti-Semitism was never far away, there was an industrial accident and a miraculous cure wrought by, who else, the Virgin. In 1520, 12,000 souvenir tokens were sold to pilgrims to Our Lovely Lady of Regensburg, some of whom are shown in a contemporary woodcut lying around her image in various states of ecstatic collapse or inebriation. Objects and centers of devotion of this kind were rarely planned and constructed by those who claimed to be in charge of the church. Typically, they arose from popular devotion, often uncontrolled. Everywhere, the church authorities were engaged in delicate balancing acts. Should they encourage or discourage such spontaneity? 
In late 14th century Lincolnshire, somebody, or perhaps a small syndicate, put up a wooden cross in a field and began to adore it and to report miracles. They are preaching and ringing bells and holding processions for the deception of the people and the increase of gain, and laymen are said to be converting the offerings to their own uses. The bishop decided that this was a holy racket and ordered the suppression of the instant cult. Six years later, however, the Pope, presumably in response to lobbying, licensed the building of a chapel close to the miracle-working cross, which was now claimed to be a hundred years old. That the late medieval church condoned so many practices that were over the fine line separating religion from superstition suggests that it was already familiar with the popular adage that if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. What might seem to us to have been higher and more debased form of devotion could be coexistent within the same individual. The elector of Saxony, Frederick the Wise, Luther's prince, was at one and the same time the patron of a modern university with a progressive faculty of theology and the proud owner of one of the largest collections in the world of sacred relics, which were held to have the power to reduce the time spent in purgatory by many thousands of years. The new technology of printing with movable type was employed to publish a catalogue of his collection. Modern Christians may find it easier to identify with reform in the shape of the intense Christocentrism of the early 16th century, and to recognize this as something that nourished the religion of the reformer Martin Luther. In England, the cult of the holy name of Jesus was popular, and many of the churches built or reconstructed in this period are studded with the monogrammatic emblem of the holy name, IHS. Both before and after the Reformation, it was thought to be the business of preachers to preach Christ. In Alsace, Matthias Grunewald painted a triptych for a convent south of Colmar, now in the museum of Unterdeinlinden, which has at its center a crucified Christ so tortured that it is hard to look upon it without emotion. Albrecht Dürer not only depicted a poignantly suffering Christ in his two woodcut series of The Passion, but in more than one self-portrait iconographically identified himself with the Man of Sorrows. Just as Christ on the cross uttered the words of one of the most somber of the Psalms, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So Luther, lecturing on the Psalms, invited participation in the experience of the suffering Christ. As in Christ, so let it be in me. Mysticism was a constant source of renewal, especially in the 14th century, its more notable English practitioners including the woman called Julian of Norwich. Her contemporary, the unknown author of the treatise called The Cloud of Unknowing, and a whole succession of writers in the north of England who left behind the spiritual equivalents of modern cookbooks. Although Luther was later suspicious of speculative mysticism as a kind of shortcut and man-made ladder to heaven, his earliest published work, the first of many hundreds, was an edition of the anonymous Theologia Germanica, which he called Deutsch Theologia, a work that expressed the religion of the people who called themselves friends of God, followers of a succession of spiritual teachers, including Meister Eckhart and his disciple Johannes Tauler. Tauler's emphasis on suffering, Leiden, was in the same key signature as Luther's early theology. 
reform in the 15th century Netherlands and the neighbouring Rhineland took the shape of a religious movement called the New Devotion, practised by a semi-monastic brotherhood, the Brethren of the Common Life. This was to have a profound impact on higher education in the 16th century, by which time the spiritual creativity of the devotion had succumbed to a rancid and repressive Puritanism, to which Erasmus, Calvin, and Rabelais were all in their turn subjected by the Christian brothers of the 16th century. The new devotion had begun, however, as a modified, adapted method of mystical devotion, which sought to rescue mysticism from the dangers of pantheism and elitism, to which it was always prone, and to make it a valuable resource for the church at large. When everything else about this episode in Christian history is forgotten, the world may remember one of its products, a little book called The Imitation of Christ, 1418, traditionally but dubiously ascribed to a certain Thomas R. Kempis. A succession of English versions by translators from both sides of the growing confessional divide was published in 1504, 1531, 1567, 1580, 1613, and 1636, and later by John Wesley, and in the 20th century by Monsignor Ronald Knox. All this may suggest that at the most authentic level of spirituality, contemplation, and prayer, the Reformation was a mere hiccup, and the continuities were stronger than the discontinuities. The literature of the new devotion helped to convert the Basque soldier Ignatius Loyola, and fed into his spiritual exercises, which in turn inspired the Christian Directory or Book of the Christian Exercise, published in the late 16th century by the English Jesuit Robert Parsons. Parsons' book was immediately turned by English Protestants into a bodlerized version, which went through many more editions than the original, 17 in the first year, 15 more up to 1638. Here was an admission that English Protestantism, even in the years of its most rabid anti-Catholicism, still craved the spiritual resources of the old church. Reform was on everyone's lips in the 15th century, the equivalent, as it were, of motherhood and apple pie. The word is often encountered in the formulation, reform of the church in head and members. And at this level, the object of reform was supposed to be the whole body of the church, but more especially its very highest echelons. That the church was in need of searching, excoriating reform, was underlined by the scandal of the Great Schism, when for a whole generation, 1378 to 1417, it was divided in its obedience between two or, for a time, three different popes. For seventy years prior to this, the papacy had been located not at Rome, but at Avignon, and was under predominantly French influence. The luxury of Avignon, which tourists to the Palais des Papes can still inspect, was denounced by the poet Petrarch and others as a Babylonian captivity. The last Avignonese pope, Gregory XI, who was French, had returned to Rome, persuaded by the pleas of a saint, Catherine of Siena, who addressed him as Dulcissimo Babbo Mio, my sweetest daddy. Rome now tried to regain the papacy for itself, but the election, under duress from a mob, of an Italian, Urban VI, provoked the counter-election of a Frenchman, Clement VII, who returned to Avignon. 
Obediences were divided along the political frontiers of Europe. Since France was for Clement, England naturally supported Urban, which meant that Scotland was for Clement. The situation was full of practical inconveniences. How could anyone be sure of the validity of any of the judgments and administrative acts that determined the distribution of property and offices? But the deeper scandal was ideological, exposing the implausibility of the claim of the Bishop of Rome to be St. Peter's successor and Christ's vicar on earth.' 